Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Well, hey, I'm John. Nice to meet all of you. I've gotten to meet some of you here before. Um, So, as far as I've been told, City Church has been going through a series on repentance, right? Hopefully that's true. Hopefully Justin isn't. I thought he might throw me a curveball and have me do the, the box with the kids and just be like, actually, this is your test. This is the whole interview. Um, <clears throat> thankfully he didn't. I was way more nervous about that than this. Um, but if you've been here the past couple of weeks or just now, you have uh, heard some kind of definition of what repentance is. At some point, and very broadly speaking, uh, to repent is to show deep regret, or remorse, or something you've done wrong. But we've been ta- in town a couple days now, about 48 hours, um, and we've realized there's one thing in which there's no amount of repentance is good enough, and that's when you call it St. Pete's with an S at the end. We were told that by Justin and Angie. That was, no, 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 don't say that. So there's no coming back from that. I don't know if repentance is enough for that one. Um, well, repentance is showing regret or remorse over something you've done wrong, uh, confessing and turning away from bad behaviors. The Bible tells us that, as we just saw, that biblical repentance is way more than that. It's not just turning away from something, but it's turning to someone, turning to God, turning to Jesus. And so today, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, I'm about to read. It's a parable that Jesus tells a group of people called the Pharisees, and the focus is on repentance, or the lack thereof, and on the love of a dad for his sons. So will you read with me Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. And he said, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. The older brother's angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when the son of yours came, he was, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, killed the fattened calf for it. You killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, uh, these friends, these new friends, friends I haven't even made yet. Um, thank you for how you're working in all of our lives, all of our stories, individuals, as individuals and as families and as a church community um, here in St. Pete. Uh, would you be with us this morning as we learn from your word? In your name I pray, amen. So I know that with it technically being a, a fifth Sunday, uh, <clears throat> means we've got kids and people of all ages in the room, right? Uh, when I was a kid, I remember hearing this story, the prodigal son parable, and my takeaway was always like, don't take your money, your parents' money, and go out and party. Like, that was when I was a kid. That's what I thought this was about. That was the big lesson here. Don't go partying. Don't waste your life away. Like, look at that younger brother. What a mess. Don't be like him, is what I thought this meant. And I guess there's, like, worse takeaways to have, you know? Like, that's not, a, I guess, a bad lesson. There's worse things to think. Um, <clears throat> but if that's your takeaway... If all you hear from this parable from Jesus is, hey, don't waste your money and don't party, stop that, then your takeaway is just like an actionable item. It's another guardrail for your life to place on your life so you can know where the line is and know not to cross that line, right? The parable becomes just one more box to check in your life. So you can go, okay, I just, I won't waste my life. I won't party all my parents' money away. And then maybe, just maybe, I'll be good enough for Jesus, And because that's our natural tendency, especially in like a Western society, American individualism, uh, let me pull myself up by my bootstraps, figure out all the things I need to do or not do to make God happy. And by the end of my life, hopefully I'm good enough for him to love me and he'll let me into heaven. And I, uh, again, I currently work in college ministry. I hear this all the time with students uh, who've been, especially two students that have been like talking, they have to have the DTR right? Define the relationship. Uh, Are we going to become official? And then so often, it's commonly guys, but you hear it both ways. Uh, I'm super interested. Like, I just don't think I'm ready to date. Uh, It's not you. It's me. If I'm honest, I need to figure out who I am. I need to get myself together first before I'm like ready for this. It's not you. It's me, right? I need some time. And we do this all the time in our life. A couple talking about having a baby and one of the partners might feel like they're not ready. I need to get my life together before I can bring a kid into this world. And by a couple, I mean, that was me a few years ago. I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Um, with all kinds of things in our lives, we've been trained that we need to know the rules, the requirements, the things necessary. And then step two is work hard, get it together. And then at some ambiguous point in the future, we'll be ready. We'll be ready to take the next step. And look, there's some truth to trying to be ready to have a baby or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. There's some truth to that. Uh, but the sad thing is, and I'm 100% included in this, we so often take the same approach to relationship with God. And to be clear, I don't, I don't want you to feel shamed for doing that because with God, it's a very natural way for us to think. It's a very human way to think because that's how the rest of our life works, right? Like, oh, you want to buy this thing, but you don't qualify for it, so you need to get your credit score good, right? Get it ready. I'm not sure if this guy or girl will be into me. I need to hit the gym. I need to get ready. But unfortunately, there's bad news in this parable, for us, and it's this, if your approach to your relationship with God is, I just need to follow the rules and get myself together, then we're in trouble. 
And you're actually being just like the younger brother in this passage today. See, the younger brother, in the story we just read, he takes uh, the inheritance from his parents, he goes out, wastes it all, and then realizes what he's done is wrong. He realizes he's in a moment of desperation and need. And knowing he has nowhere left to turn, he says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to repent to my dad for what I've done wrong, and I'm going to hope that's enough. And when we consider the ideas of repentance and the story of the prodigal son, notice this seemingly insignificant part of the story that Jesus includes, verses 17 and 19. It says this, And when the younger brother, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll arise, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. We've all seen the, the movie where, I mean, there's a ton of examples, where someone is getting ready for a job interview, right? Or someone's getting ready to like ask someone out on a date or a high schooler is ready to ask that guy or girl out to like the homecoming dance to prom. Um, there's always a scene of them rehearsing in the mirror, like what they're going to say, right? Uh, and here we catch the prodigal son doing the same thing. He's like, all right, what I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go to my dad. All right, I'm not going to blow it. I'm going to say it just like this. In this order, I need to say it just right. If I say it just right and I practice my delivery, my forgiveness is just perfect. Maybe my dad will take me back just as like a worker in his house. My point here is this. The prodigal son, the younger brother in our story today, he did specific wrongs. He asked for his inheritance money early and he went out and wasted all of it. He showed he cared more about money and a lifestyle than he cared about his own dad, his family. He did specific things wrong, and in his speech, he's practicing, he's acknowledging that wrong and what specifically he's done wrong, and he's ready to tell his dad about it. He's ready to repent. And in his practicing of his speech, uh, his turning around and going home, giving his speech to his dad, he's showing that he acknowledged and was repenting of the things he'd done wrong, right? And whether it's with our friends or family or strangers or with God, Whoever we've hurt, the first step to reconciliation is being specific about the wrongs we've done, right? So we see all the younger brother, brother does in the story. Some very specific things wrong. He repented of, he got ready, returned to his father. But let's take a look at the older brother briefly. What role does he play in this story and in repentance? And to see that, let's jump back to, it's actually verse 2 of Luke 15. It wasn't in our... Uh, passage we read at the beginning. But so Luke 15, the first two verses, starts out. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3 starts with, So Jesus told them this parable. And Jesus proceeds to tell them three parables, culminating in prodigal son. See, this all started, the context here is that the Pharisees, scribes, these were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They see Jesus hanging out with sinners, such as tax collectors, people who've done very clear and obvious things wrong, specific wrongs, and the Pharisees don't like it. Not just that, but they see Jesus as receiving and eating with bad people or the bottoms of society people that Jesus shouldn't be associating with. And actually, this receiving and eating that Jesus is doing with them, it doesn't just imply that he was like hanging out with them for a few minutes, having a one-off conversation. But Jesus was communicating something more than just a casual hangout he was doing with the sinners. 
On this, Tim Keller writes, to sit down and eat with someone in the ancient Near East was a token of acceptance. That's what Jesus was showing. Jesus wasn't just spending a little time with these people. He, he almost seemed to be accepting of them. He didn't just talk to them in passing. It's more like he had them over for like a barbecue at his house on a Friday night, right? He didn't just like go grab a bite with them. He was like, he wanted to have them over. He wanted to spend time with them, know them. And this is what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of. And this is the thing they're all worked up about. And so in response, Jesus tells them the story, the prodigal son. And so when we have that context in mind, the audience Jesus is talking to, we have all that in mind. Uh, it gives us a bit of different perspective, especially on the older and younger brothers. It now reads more like the prodigal son that we talked about, the younger brother. He is the tax collectors, the sinners that Jesus isn't supposed to hang out with, right? People wandering, living their own way, doing whatever they want, committing specific or obvious sins. But Jesus, who represents the father in the story, who we'll get to in a minute, he receives and eats with those people. He welcomes them with open arms. He pursues them. He searches for them. And the older brother then in the story, he's like the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They have more head knowledge than the others. They know the right things. They chose to stay at their father's house. They didn't go out and do their own thing. They didn't wander off. They weren't out there being sinners. They didn't desire to run off and leave their father like the younger brother did. And for instance, where was the older brother? If you notice, where was the older brother when the younger brother does return home? It says he's somewhere out working in the fields, being a good son. And he finds out his brothers return home because he hears the commotion of the party. Like, he, he's such a good son that the party's already started because he was out there working. They started the party without him. He was out working in the fields, wanting to be a good son to his dad. And his mind was so unconcerned with his brother even returning that it didn't even occur to him what the party was for. Right? He had to ask someone who worked at his father's house, like, what is that? What's all that, what's all that noise? What's that music? it's clear that through this story, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, hey, not only do I search for and welcome the lost with open arms, but if you claim to love God and be a Christian, then you should be doing the same, but you don't. You should be out here eating with them, trying to find a younger brother with me. You know enough. You know more than anyone. You're the good son, but you aren't out there with me, are you? The Pharisees in the story, the, the, the pride their arrogance, their belief that their good works were good enough to save them. Following all the laws perfectly, not missing a day of their Bible reading plan, praying every morning and every night, serving a different nonprofit every day of the week, all good things to do, to be clear. But the problem is that the Pharisees thought doing all those things was enough to save them, that that made them good enough or better. They thought they didn't actually have anything to repent of. Listen to how, again, Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, talks about the older brother and the Pharisees. He says, The older brother's spiritual problem is the radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image on achievements and performance. So he must endlessly prop up his sense of righteousness by putting others down and finding fault. As one of the teachers, my teachers in seminary put it, the main barrier between Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their good works. What must we do to then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we've done wrong. But if that's all you do, you may just remain an older brother. To truly become Christians, and hear this, 
To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. So what does this mean? It means not only do we need to repent of our specific sins, the things we've done wrong, but it also means we need to repent of the things we've done right. Of the things that we've counted on to tell us who our identity is as someone who's good and doesn't really need that much saving. So while we need a specific repentance, we also need this more general repentance, which is repenting of our entire worldview and way of living our life, which we count on ourselves instead of counting on Jesus. And Keller continues, we also learn from this parable that our repentance must go deeper than just regret for individual sins. When the younger brother comes back, he has a long list of wrongdoings for which he must express remorse. When we think of repentance, we think if you want to get right with God, you get out your list of sins and you tell him how sorry you are about each item. He says repentance is not less than that, but it's much more. Because the list approach isn't sufficient to address the condition of the older brother. So what can we learn about repentance in the story of the prodigal son? Well, the younger brother shows us a model of being specific about the things we've done wrong and turning back to our father. But the older brother shows us this more general repentance, an entire heart change, a shift in posture and attitude of repentance, a whole life change. So that's the younger brother, that's the older brother. Now we get to the most exciting character, and that's the father, the dad. And one of the first clues about who he is and what he's like, and actually in the part of the story where we saw the younger brother preparing his speech, like he's preparing his speech in the mirror, right? He's like, all right, I got to say this, 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 this. I got to say it just right if my dad's going to love me. Um, Did you notice that when he's practicing his speech, the younger brother in the mirror, he's planning to say three things. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he says, treat me as one of your servants. He's got three things. I got to say these three things in this order. But then verse 21 When we get to his dad and he has the chance to actually deliver the speech he's working on, he's so carefully crafted. What does he say? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the dad cuts him off. And the dad just immediately goes, quick, bring the best robe. He's going to let him finish his speech. The dad doesn't even give him a chance. He's too excited to see his son. He's too excited to forgive him and throw him a party. So the father is quick to forgive, but not just that, he wants to forgive. Read with me again, verse 20. And he, the younger brother, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. So my wife, Marianne and I, we uh, met in college on summer staff with Young Life um, at a camp called Creek Creek Ranch in Colorado. So I worked as the maintenance guy that summer. This is after our freshman year of college. I was the maintenance guy, which means I drove around in a golf cart and had a cool walkie-talkie and it looked important, but actually couldn't have been less important. <laughs> I like changed light bulbs and unclogged toilets, but I had a golf cart. Um, Marianne worked in the snack bar, uh, an obvious pairing. Um, so we started talking pretty early on. We were there for a month. We started talking pretty early on, flirting and all that. Obviously, I thought she was cute. Um, so I started to do, my plan, my genius plan, was to take a couple extra trips by the snack bar every day on my like, maintenance routes, right? When, I, when I'd go through the campgrounds, I'd like, check for the light bulbs every day, which ones are out, trying to replace. I would check the, the snack bar a few extra times. <clears throat> because what building is more important than the snack bar to have lights on, right? Of course, it made sense. It's the most important building on campus. Um, 
I made any excuse I could to go by the snack bar and see Marianne, hopefully get to talk to her, right? Is that, is that not what the father is doing for the prodigal son here? That's what it reads like. The, the story doesn't just tell us, doesn't tell us how long the son, son was gone. It says that he took a journey to a far country before he came back. So the father didn't know if or when the son would return, but what's he doing? He's looking for him. It says, while the son was a long way off, his father saw him. A long way off, the father saw him. I like to imagine the dad's like doing things around the house, working, taking any chance he can to like be outside, working by the street. Like the roof didn't really need replacing, but he's like, I'm going to get up there and replace it so I can kind of get a good view. He mowed the grass like three times a week just so he could be out front. As close to the possible, as close to the street possible, looking for his son. The father was looking, searching for his son. And this is something that's mentioned a lot uh, through Luke's gospel account, the book of Luke. It's this looking or searching that we see. And it's typically combined with a couple other things, compassion and action. It's this triad of searching, compassion, and action. Uh, For example, and you don't have to turn there or anything, but Luke 7, there's a story where Jesus heals a widow's son. In Luke 7, 13, Luke writes, and when the Lord saw her, when Jesus saw her, it says he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And he brought the son back to life. Jesus saw the widow, had compassion on her, and took action to help her. The story of the Good Samaritan, if you've heard it in Luke 10. Um, now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw a hurt man on the side of the road. He passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite came to the place, saw a man hurt on the side of the road, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, saw the man, says he had compassion, and then if you know the story, uh, he helps the hurt man. Multiple times in the book of Luke, we see this seeing, like searching, compassion, and then action. And we see it here in the story of the prodigal son, verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was a long way off, the father saw him, says he felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father in the story has his eyes wide open and searching for his son, longing for the return of his son. Why? Because he wants to find him. He wants to have compassion on him. He wants to take him, embrace him, kiss him. He wants to throw him a party. Who is the dad in the story? Someone who's searching for his lost son, trying to sh- longing to show compassion on him, and just dying to throw a party for him. The dad is saying to the older brother in the story, and Jesus is telling the Pharisees, as we know, he's saying, hey, you're mad that I'm spending time with, sharing meals with sinners? Well, there's an open seat at the table if you want to come too. He ends the story saying, come on, join my party. We see so many stories about the Gospels where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, where he's pushing back against the people who know the most about the Bible. And a story he's pushing back, but we also see him telling them, hey, I love you too. You may not like it, but the tax collectors and sinners are my children. But guess what? You're one of my children too. You're their brother, actually. We can have a party for you any day of the week. I want to throw you a party too. All you've got to do is come home with me. Actually be here with me. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. He's telling us no matter who we are or what we've done, it's impossible for us to live a life of so much sin that he won't welcome us home. And likewise, there's no amount of older brother pride or jealousy we may feel. There's nothing we can do to separate us from God to the point that he won't welcome us, his children, back home. 
not only that, there's nothing we can do to stop Jesus from being out in the front yard, mowing the grass for the fourth time this week, watching the street, waiting on us. He's eagerly excited to forgive us and love us and show us grace and compassion that we might not deserve, that we don't deserve. There's a seat at his table for sinners and tax collectors and younger brothers and older brothers and Pharisees and the hypocrites. And there's a seat at his table for you and for me. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your heart. No matter where you are, he's ready to welcome you home and throw you a party. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He didn't tell this story to, again, shame the Pharisees, the older brothers of the world. Younger brother, we've seen he's repented of his specific sins. He's returned home, thrown himself into the arms of his dad. Where do we leave the older brother? The one in need of general repentance, a true heart change. Notice that Jesus leaves the story in a cliffhanger. It ends and it says, verse 31, And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the story just ends. On to Luke 16. But why does it end that way? For all we know, the older brother does repent, come in to the party. And also for all we know, he rejects it and says, actually, I want my inheritance too. And he takes off on the road. We don't know. That's the point. Jesus is giving an open invitation to the older brother, to the Pharisees, to you and me sitting in church on a Sunday morning. He's saying, look at this prodigal who left home, but turn around and return my loving embrace. I was waiting for him, looking for him, and I was excited to throw him a party. Now to you, child who thinks you're doing so great, not committing such terrible things as the people out there, I'm not as bad as them. To you who feels and thinks that way, it's your turn. Do you want to come into the party too? Because I deeply want you to, is what Jesus is saying. And only is that the invitation to us when we first put our faith in Jesus, but every week Jesus invites us back to his table to bring him the things we've done wrong and the things we've done right. He invites us to have a seat at the party, a seat at his table and to fully trust him, to rest in his love. To say that we can't go it alone, that we need him with everything in our lives. So would you consider that invitation as we come to the table here in a moment to take the Lord's Supper? Let me pray for us.